The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 14 this morning. We're going to pick up in the story, and I've entitled the message this morning, A Tale of Two Kings, and I might also entitle it, A Tale of Two Kingdoms. In Genesis chapter 14, we saw last week where there were a northern alliance of kings that that came down to the south where Abram was and also the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they had made alliances between the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. And they had come down, the northern kingdom had come down and had defeated those southern kingdoms, had taken all of their possessions. And among that, they took Lot, who was Abram's nephew, with them. Lot rallied a group, a large group, a strong group of 318 soldiers, probably outnumbered somewhere around four or five to one, as he went there north to retrieve Lot, to rescue Lot from that captivity. And God gave Abraham a tremendous victory. You think about the odds that were there. And probably more trained and skilled soldiers that were part of those northern kingdoms. And Abraham, Abram didn't have a kingdom. He wasn't a king. He was called out by God. He was a people and how God gave them that victory. And can I tell you this? This applies in your life and in my life just as it does in Abram's life what we find here. Sometimes the greatest battles that you and I will face in life as believers are after those times of great victory. I have resigned a lot of morning Monday mornings. You hear what I'm saying there? So we have to be just as watchful and recognize that we are continually engaged in a battle and warfare, even after the great victory. Sometimes those are times that we can be subject to great defeat. We remember Joshua as he was going into the promised land where they had taken the city of Jericho. We find in the next chapter, after that great victory and seeing God deliver the city of Jericho to them, they they had their tails given to them in the city of Ai. Remember that? Remember Elijah as he's prophesying there at Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal were there. and There were many of them. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven that it quenched all of the barrels and none of the other prophets could do anything like that. A great victory only to find in the following chapter, the moment he heard that Jezebel was looking for him, he wept and was sorrowful and was greatly depressed. Old Scottish pastor by the name of Andrew Bauer said this. He said, let us be watchful after the victory as before the battle. Where we pick up here in verse 17 of this account, we find that as Abraham is returning from victory, he has two kings that come out to meet him and to greet him. One is from the city of Sodom, and we're going to learn more about the wretchedness of Sodom as we go on through the book of Genesis. But the other is the king Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem or the king of Jerusalem. Both of these kings come out to meet Abraham. Both would present a choice to Abraham. When you look at these two kings and what they represented, it presented with Abraham a choice. And that choice was, am I going to, as we saw last week, am I going to continue to walk by faith or am I going to walk by sight? 
Am I going to give my allegiance to this kingdom or am I going to give my allegiance to the other kingdom? Both are real people in the account of Scripture. They, they were real people. They're not figures or foreshower or imaginations, but both represent, as we'll find as we go on through the Scripture, both are symbolic representations of some very important spiritual truths that you and I need to apply in our lives. They represent really two kingdoms, if you will. Let me ask you this. What does every king have? A kingdom, right? What does every kingdom have? Subjects. And so the challenge here or the temptation here for Abram was, am I going to align with this king and his kingdom and become a subject of his kingdom and his reign or his, and his rule, or am I going to align with this other kingdom and become subject to the principles and the guardianship, the glory in that kingdom? And those two kingdoms that would represent there would be what we might call the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God. You see, as came the city of Sodom, he represents, if you will, what the kingdom of the world looks like. And we find here in this passage in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of the northern kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abram, in the valley of Sheba. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tenth or a tithe of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Memre take their share. Father, we pray that God, as we look at this passage, Lord, God, we would examine our own lives in light of this, God, and answer the question, what, what king, what kingdom am I being subject to? God, may we recognize that, Lord Jesus, you have set us free from that kingdom of darkness, that kingdom of the world, God. By the blood of Jesus, you have set us free from that, O oh God. And God, I would pray that this morning the Holy Spirit would move in my heart and the hearts of every person hearing this message this morning, God, that we would certainly know that we have been freed and we're no longer slaves to that kingdom because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Now, we see in verses 21 and 22 this dialogue that takes place between the king of Sodom and Abram. The first thing that you notice is that the king of Sodom says to Abraham, Abraham, uh, just give me the people. Give me the ones that you took captive. He wanted to bring them into slavery in his kingdom. And then he says to him, but, but I want you to take all of the spoils of war and you can have them for yourself. Now, there's a problem here. 
Because customary in that day, if one went to conquer an enemy, it was kind of the, 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 the chest, if you will, of warfare that all of the material things that they had passed and possessed, and they had rights to all the people as well, they became theirs. They became their possession. And so all that Abram had taken really rightfully belonged to him. Who is, king, who is this king of Sodom saying, I will give this to you? It was already Abram's to begin with. We see he had another agenda in mind there. Now, can I propose to you that between verses 21 and 22, I think there was some, probably some time that lapsed in there. We don't see it necessarily because we read from one verse to the other. Here's why I propose that some time lapsed there. Because as this man came out to Abram and he said this, there was a period, whatever short or however long it may have been, that probably through Abram's mind there was a sense of temptation maybe to fall to what the king was offering him. It's the same temptation that you and I face every day as Christ followers, and that is, am I going to bow to the king and expect favor from him, an alliance from that king, the king of the world, or am I going to hold to my alliance and my allegiance and my commitment to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ? Abraham may have been tempted at the moment to say, do I, want to, do I want to walk by faith or do I want to walk by sight? Now, we've seen that Abram, just like us, has a tendency at times to walk by sight, right? Famine in the land, he runs to Egypt without ever inquiring of God, and God has to deliver him. Abram was a man just like you and I. Not a perfect man, but a righteous man. And he was made righteous by his faith in God. Do I walk by faith or do I walk by sight? Do I, do I walk by faith, but do I also add a little insurance to my walking by faith? Yes, I'm going to trust God, but you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have an alliance with the king of Sodom, which would bring in an alliance with the other kingdoms here, because what if the kingdoms of the north decide to take retribution or revenge and come down and attack me? I was victorious with 316 men the first time, but maybe it won't happen. I caught them by surprise the first time because I invaded at night, but the next time they may have the upper hand on me. And so you know what? I'm going to walk by faith, but I'm going to add a little insurance here. Now, Christian, can I tell you this? We oftentimes find ourselves in that place. It's easy for me to give lip service to walking by faith, <laughs> but I love having a reserve in the bank account. Are we going to walk by faith? Now, that, let me clarify that. That's wise, <laughs> okay? But it, the question is, where is my faith? Is my faith placed in that or is my faith placed in God? I like to say that Abram had kind of one of those Joshua moments that we find recorded in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, where Joshua says to this, after they've gone into the promised land, he says, choose the gods that you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Was Abram going to make an alliance with the world and expect the world or the kingdom of the world to make his provision and his protection, or was he going to hold square 
on the alignment that he may had made with God. You see, what we fail to realize oftentimes is that when we receive payment, if you will, from the world, because that's what, that's what the king was offering him, right? You take these spoils, and Abraham said, no, I'm not going to take them from you because surely you will be the one to say that you have made Abram rich, and I'll be obligated to you from here on out if I take what you want to give to me, which is rightfully mine to begin with. And he had to make a choice. Where am I going to make my alliance? James speaks of this in James chapter 4, verse 4, when he's talking about the believer making friendship with the world. Remember I said the king of Sodom and represents that kingdom of the world and all that goes along with it. James says this as he's writing to those believers. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Interesting word that's translated friendship in this passage. It's actually the Greek word phileo, which is translated love. And we have been in church long enough to understand, maybe most of us have probably the three types of words that are translated love. There's phileo, there's eros, and there's agape. And this phileo kind of love was that city of what? Philadelphia, the city of love. I'm not so sure it is today, but at one time it was a city of love. He says that, that, that if, we, if we choose to have that kind of friend relationship with the world, that, that, that word can be translated as, as to kiss or, have to, or to have a fondness of that. He says we make ourselves out to be enemies of God. So one would ask the question, what does it mean to be a friend of the world? Well, simply put, it means this, adopting the interest of the world to our very own interest. You see, there's that what we call, the Bible refers to as the world system. Now, in the way that we're using this, the way that Scripture uses this, it's not the physical world that we see. But it's that system of the world that the Bible talks about. So that brings the next question. What exactly is the Bible talking about? What does it speak of when it talks about, speaks to the world? Because the Scriptures tell us to love not the world, right? Is it telling us not to love people of the world? No. What it's referring to is a, a world system there. It's a system that the Bible clearly shows us that is, that is governed, that, that it's driven by the one who is the God of this age, Satan himself, and all his little minions. You see, he knows that he has been defeated at the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Can you say amen to that? But he is still active and working. And in the life of the believer, what he's challenging, presenting to you and me every single day is to become friends again, lovers with the world that, can I be honest, my flesh loves the world. And so does yours. You're here this morning, you're so pious, and you say, well, my flesh doesn't. You just yielded to the flesh. (laughs) 
those appetites of the world, I think the best way to get a clear definition of what the world is is to look at what Scripture says. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. John's writing this, and we studied through this when we went through the book of 1 John a couple of years ago. But John writes, and he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Scriptures also tell us to examine ourselves daily. And the question is, am I in love with the world? If that's our passion, if that's our drive, we need to reexamine where we are in our relationship and our fellowship with the Lord, right? You see, it's every day that you and I face the challenges or the temptations of the world. We live in the world, and it's always bombarding us everywhere, and it tries to appeal to those appetites that we have as a result of our sin nature and our flesh. He says this, for this is all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is not from the Father, but this is from the world. And so we look at this, John describes the world or the world system, if you will, as being driven by two primary passions, two primary things that that drive the worldly thinking, and they are this, this passion for pleasure and a pride in possessions. We see clearly in this verse in 1 John that, that there are the pleasures that John speaks of that draw us or attract us to the world, right? Those things that, that are the lust of the flesh, the, the things that my flesh desires to gratify, and they're the lust of the eyes. It's in a physical and aesthetic craving. Why do you think that all marketing is done to appeal? draw us in so that we'll plop down that credit card and get in incredible debt to have that just to gratify that which we want. Marketers understand it, and the enemy understands it just as well. You see, what the enemy does is that he appeals to us those things that are cravings of our flesh. Now, what are we talking about? Our, our flesh. Our flesh is our mind, will, and emotions. It's, it's, that, it's that soulish area that the Bible talks about. And before you and I came to know Christ, there were patterns that developed in our lives. Some have deeper patterns than others do, depending on what type of life we live before we came to Christ. But can I tell you that those patterns that were ingrained in our flesh that were driven by the sinful nature are still there in our flesh and we can be tempted and we are tempted by them every single day. And maybe I'm the only one in the room that's tempted by them. I don't think so. And the enemy knows exactly what those are. And see, his work in your life and in my life, if you're a Christ follower, is to get us to be drawn into one of those desires, those passions of the flesh, so that it severs our fellowship, not relationship, but our fellowship with Christ and walking with Him in the Spirit. And He's got us defeated right where we are. I've had this happen to me. Have you ever sinned and you known you sinned? I mean, you knew you were sinning. Let me see your hands raised. Did you in a very short time have an opportunity to share Christ with somebody? 
You know why we didn't? Because the enemy is reminding us of where we went down that road and that passion of the flesh. You see how the enemy works? You see, if he can defeat the body of Christ in that, then man, I don't care how much I preach or anybody else preaches about sharing your faith. If he can get us off track in that and being driven by the passions of the flesh, we will no longer be engaged in the mission that he's called us to, to win people to Christ, make disciples, and to send them for Christ. That's his work in the body right now. That's what he's doing all over the place. And so he tries to to appeal to us. The proverb, the Solomon in the proverb says this, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, this world system appeals to us through those lust, those passions of the flesh, and that other sense, that aesthetic craving, craving, the lust of the eyes. I drive a 1996 Ford F-150. Not much to brag about, amen? You know, the other day I saw a brand new Ford F-150. My wife's saying, nope. <laughs> nothing, nothing against anybody that has a brand new F-150. But I think I deserve it instead of you. <laughs> not realizing that in just a year or two, it's not going to look any better unless I'm Harold Danforth and I spend all my time washing that thing. It's not going to look any better than what it did the day that I bought. And as a matter of fact, it's going to deteriorate. And in 20 years, guess what? 25 years, it's going to be an old truck. You follow what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with those things. But the question is, is, am I allowing that to drive my life? Now, there I put it to an idea of possession. But is it a place that someone has that you want? a place or a position in life? Is there a wife that somebody has that you want? Don't answer that. (laughs) Is there a husband that somebody else has that you want? Do you get what I'm saying here? He appeals to us that way, and where he's appealing is to that sin nature of the flesh. It's semantics, whatever you want to call it, but he's, he's appealing to that thing. Though it's dead and it's been crucified with Christ, it still rears its ugly head every day. Amen? This possessions, pride of life. He, John refers to it as the pride of possessions or the pride of life. I'd want to point us to Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is speaking there in verse 19. He says this. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, what's the common sense thing to do here? 
A common sense thing says, I'm not going to store up here because I know that rust and moth and all that other stuff are going to destroy it. So I want to store those things in heaven which matter. Verse 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Underline that, amen. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is what we need to underline. And this is what Abram was faced with that day. Jesus says that no one can serve two masters. Abram was faced with a choice. He had to make a distinctive choice. He couldn't serve the the king of Sodom and the king of, of, of Salem. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters, for neither either you will hate the one and love the other, you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God, and this translation says money. Some of your translations say mammon. That idea of mammon really has more to do with, if I can use this term, not a literal spirit, but the spirit of, of wealth. Can I say this? We can have a craving for for possessions, and there's nothing wrong with possessions. Don't mishear me. But the question is, where's my heart? Is my heart in those things? Because Jesus tells me I can't serve him and serve that at the same time. I'll either love the one and hate the other, or I'll hate the one and love the other. It, it just doesn't work that way. Whether we're wealthy, one is wealthy, I'm not going to put we're in that, but compared to the most of the world, we're all extremely wealthy in this room. Or I can be a pauper and still have this same temptation. Years ago, I was with Booker Banda, who, by the way, uh, we are, are in process of sending him funds now. Malawi, Yona Booker, our brother from Malawi, right? Yona Booker. Famine in Malawi. Uh, through your giving, your graciousness, we're sending some food, some money so that he can purchase food there in Malawi just to feed pastors. I was driving through looking at all of these villages with literally hundreds of village huts. And we went to one of those villages and had a great worship service. By the way, it was just a, it was just a thatched roof, grass walls, dirt floor, no padded pews, I can promise you that. And there was no air conditioning. And after some of those places in worship, I realized and recognized that this applies to the church as well. We, we love our buildings, don't we? There are times I think I would not hear, but there are times I think, you know, I'd rather be back in the bush there in Malawi worshiping with believers that had nothing but God, worshiping in a house full that wants it this way and that way, and I didn't like that, and I didn't like this. God, help us. I do love you. Sometimes I want to say, y'all, we are so missing it. The church... 
we, we are guilty of loving the world rather than God. And the possessions that come with that, where's our allegiance? Don't email me after today. Ask Booker, I said, Booker, what's the greatest challenge you have in these villages among the believers? Booker looked at me and said, greed. Greed? Gee, yeah, this brother has a grass roof, and, and the hut next door, he, he's able to find enough wood to, to make a wood thatched roof, and he, he wants what his neighbor has. And the brother with the wood thatch roof finds some tin somewhere, and he puts tin on his roof, and now the neighbor with the wood roof and the neighbor with the grass roof have greed. They want what he wants. It's a universal condition. Thank God that Christ has set us free from that through the blood of Jesus. Amen? i got to wind up. How can I resist then? this lure of the world, because we all have to face it. We, listen, we're all in the same boat here. We face every single day. If you don't recognize it, there may be a problem because the Holy Spirit, he, He's going to let us know when we're, when we're being lured after that which the world offers, that kingdom. If there's no conviction there, there may not be the presence of the Holy Spirit residing in us. How do we resist the world? Let me, we can throw this whole passage up on the screen, but John chapter 17, verses 15 to 21, when Jesus is praying to the Father and he's, he's praying for unity and he's, he's praying and asking God, God, would you do this? God, would you set them? Would you sanctify them in the truth? Your word is truth. And in context, he's talking about believers that are living in the world. You've heard the saying that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And the key that I'll harp on till the day I die is, believer, you need to be, we need to be in this. Jesus said, God sanctify them with truth, and your word is truth. You and I are being bombarded with, quote, unquote, truth every single day. When we turn on the TV, when we look at our devices, whatever it is, when our conversations, we are being confronted, we're being faced with the temptation of the world, but it's by the Spirit of God where the Word of God is activated, if you will, in our hearts when we're in it. We can identify and say, no, I see where that's coming from. God, Holy Spirit, give me power to resist that temptation Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the same idea being the truth. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? By the Word of God. You see, it's the Word of God that, I've said this so many times, when I look back in my Christian life, 37 years now, I'm not sure, but, but I think about it, what has brought, and I'm nowhere, I, listen, I'm, not, I'm nowhere close to where I want to be, Right? When I look back, what has been the thing that has grown me? What's been the thing that's matured me? What's been the thing that, that has, has kept me, if you will? And it's the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, believer, if you want to grow, if you want to grow to maturity, then it's going to require that we do some digging, we do some effort, we do some work, and let the Word of God work in our hearts. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. 
John writes this. He said, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. There is victory in Christ over the world. John here is talking about ultimate victory, right? But in this life, there is victory over the world. So I don't want, I don't want to do a doom and gloom and say, hey, you're faced by the world, so just hunker down and, and just hope you avoid it, right? No. He's given us the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives so that we might not just exist in the world, but overcome the world to His glory. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The same faith that Jude talks about, the faith once and for all where one has recognized that they are completely separated from God because of their sin, and they know there's no hope of ever having a relationship with the holy God, and they recognize as God reveals to them the provision that He has made through His sinless Son who shed His blood on a cross. And the Bible says that if we trust in Him, then we will be saved. The faith, that's the only way to overcome this world, and the world beyond. Lastly, let me jump to John chapter 14, verse 27. There's a good reference there you can look at. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Ronnie, I gave you the wrong. I made a mistake yesterday, Ronnie. I know that's rare. But I'm... <laughs> John chapter 14, verse 27. I think this is a great verse to close on. Jesus says this as he is about to leave. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. What kind of peace? What kind of peace? Peace with God through his saving mercy. Because we were once enemies of God, but now I give you this peace with God. And I, I give you peace peace. Can I put in parentheses? All hell might be breaking loose around you, but in me there's peace. He says, peace I leave with you, peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, only from Jesus comes this peace that the world cannot give to us. The world advertises it to us every day. It offers it to us. It appeals to our sin nature, our flesh, and we find ourselves empty after a short period of gratification. Saying there's, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. I mean, the, the world told me if I had this, then everything would be all right. Everything would be good. But it's not. There's only one peace. And that's through Jesus. You see, God's extended His peace to us. There's peace from God. There's the peace of God. But there is also peace with God. 
And if you've not made peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus, you'll never experience the peace from God or the peace of God. I'm going to invite you this morning, whether you're here in this room or whether you're watching online, that if the Holy Spirit right now is bearing on your heart and you know that you do not have this peace with God, I'm going to invite you this morning to make a decision very similar to what Abram had to make on that day and to make a choice. Am I going to bow to the God of this age who promises all kinds of good things, but in the end, at the end of it all, that day where I'm appointed to die just like every man is and to face judgment, That day, I got my momentary gratification, gratifications that never satisfied by bowing down to the God of this world. Or to offer you the second choice that Abram had. That's to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. To be willing to repent, to turn from your sin, place your trust in Jesus and ask Him to save you. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.